Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we are going to be taking a look at what is arguably the greatest hard rock album of all time, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. It is inarguably the biggest selling debut of any band ever. It has to date sold 30 million plus copies worldwide and it was almost a bomb but we'll get into all that (laughs) guns and roses uh signed by tom zutout who is the same guy who discovered motley crew is signed to geffen records uh they put out the live like a suicide ep which we'll cover when we uh talk about uh GNR Lies, because it was basically re-released as part of that package. But then they go into the studio January 18th through June 23rd, 1987. Uh, when, when I say the studio, I mean many studios. Uh, Rumbo in Los Angeles, Take One in Burbank, Record Plant Los Angeles, Cam Am Studios, and Media Sound Studios. Um, Mike Klink, ends up being chosen to produce. Uh, Some of the other names that are considered include Paul Stanley and Nikki Six, uh, amongst others. And Mutt Lang was one that was tossed around other people like that. So there's so much to say about this record. I'm I'm so (laughs) looking forward to this podcast. Uh, Right off the bat, general thoughts about Appetite for Destruction, John. Um, I, okay, so once again, you're the person that introduced me to Guns N' Roses, um, by, more by word of mouth. I, I did not buy Appetite for Destruction at all. I know the album, and I know that this is probably going to get me kicked off the podcast. I did not, um, I didn't buy the album. I don't think I've ever purchased the album, but when I t- pulled it up to iTunes, I knew every single song, so obviously there's somewhere that I heard it um it's on retrospect listening to it again it's a funny it's a funny album because it was it hit right at the time that i was kind of giving up heavy metal and so i not giving it up but sort of not really more interested in finding new stuff and um i didn't pay any attention to it until like years later when I was, I heard like Sweet Child of Mine and I was like, that's a pretty tasty bass line right there. Or, you know, any of the songs, again, uh, a lot of it came to me um, later. You know what I mean? It's, it is basically a perfect album. And I can get into like, I'm, I'm, I, this is one of the things that I was thinking about. What the hell was I listening to at this time? And the one claim to fame that I have about Guns N' Roses is that I saw them open for the cult at the Detroit State Theater in August of 87. Um, I had looked that up on Wikipedia. I don't have that memorized. So, um, <laughs> so it could be wrong. I don't know. It's just something I heard. Um, and I and saw so them. Tell me about that show. When you saw that show, were you like, this is the future of. I thought it was really amazing. I remember thinking, these guys are going to be something big. And then by the time that album. Because you had been talking about them, other people had been talking about it. I had read about them like somewhere. 
I mean, this is pre-internet, so there was no whatever, but I remember thinking like, um, these guys are pretty, pretty awesome and they're supposed to be the next big thing. Um, but then I, they, whenever they really, I guess it was like that year, that's our junior year of high school, right, Dave? I mean, that's when it was. Yeah, 87. Yeah. Beginning of our junior year. Yeah. So I, I don't know what happened. I just missed buying it. Like suddenly it was like everywhere. You know what I mean? I know that you were fanatical about it. Other people that I knew were fanatical about it, but there was something that where I just missed it. It was a great show. And when I, in retrospect, when I look back on it, I'm like, well, I probably should have bought Appetite for uh, Destruction instead of uh, the Cult's Electric album, which I remember distinctly purchasing. Um, you know what I mean? And, and, and thinking, and I spent the last week going through like, what the hell was I listening to? And how did I miss this? You know what I mean? And instead was paying attention to, and I mean, I got, you know, like the, I think that was when I was starting to get introduced to the replacements. And to me, that kind of stuff was sort of what was real and Guns N' Roses was manufactured. Now in retrospect, looking back on it and then again listening to it now at 50 holy shit you know this is a this is one of the greatest albums ever you know and i really i missed the boat totally wrong on it you know um but for some reason it just hit at a time that i didn't care you know i wasn't paying any attention to it so go ahead you guys so mike yes uh a similar situation with me um john uh i remember dave introduced me to this record as well i think we might have listened to it um at your dad's place in squirrel hill on phillips avenue and uh i thought oh my god this is so great i i, I this sounds like the stones it sounds like aerosmith it sounds like you know all the best things that you know, all the current bands that were out at the time should have been doing um you know because at the time i was listening to you know people introduced, introduced me to like dio and dokken and twist sister and but this just seems so American, you know, metal in a way. And it, it, it just, it hit me. I thought, oh my God, let me get this. So, you know, I bought it straight away. I, don't, I still don't have the original copy uh, on vinyl that I bought, but I, I've, I've long since bought other copies. So I have like, you know, the, you know, the, the version that was not banned and then the version that was banned with a hype sticker and, you know, the sticker. And then I, you know, on another copy, you know, the, the band cover with the, the hype sticker and the sticker and, does that have the Robert since, Williams cover on it? Yeah, I, I've got three of those. So yeah, I've been, I, you know, and I had the the cassette for the car, you know, the CD for home, you know. So yeah, <laughs> I, I basically probably bought, you know, Slash's garage door, <laughs> new house. But anyhow, um, I, again, I was blown away by the record, and then when you listen to it, there's just so much to get into, um, you know, from the guitar perspective, and the tone is so great, and you know, just from a, you know a songwriting you know, standpoint, there are so many great parts. I mean, if you do the math it, it some some songs have my as many as like seven or nine different parts within within the same song mm -hmm. it's amazing and, and then the, the thing the real takeaway for me is, is listen to it again recently is how great the guitar interplay is like if you oh, listen yeah. to the first the first aerosmith record right which sonically is not the most well-produced record in the world but the guitar interplay is there you know it's they're talking to each other and on this record you know anybody you know even people that aren't guitar players the thing to for me to focus on that is refreshing is to just put headphones on and listen to that mix because those guys are they're talking you can tell these songs were well played out in clubs well before they got into the studio and the again the arrangements are sophisticated it's well executed it's, it's a great album you know for many reasons other than the fact that you know there are so many great songs on the record but the playing is so great and the arrangements are great and just you know 
the guitar weaving is awesome. And I think it also shows how underappreciated uh, Izzy is as a guitar player and probably uh, because he also takes several solos in this record, which many people might not know. There, there's just so much you can do. It's a, it's a killer record. Well, how that. underrated all of them are as musicians. I mean, holy crap, this album is all over the... I mean, this is one of the best things I've listened to in a long time. Yeah. Um, my, my thesis about this record is this is the Casablanca of hard rock records from the Sunset Strip, right? And for those listeners out there who might be a little young to know about Casablanca, it's pretty much considered the greatest American film of all time, but it was completely a product of the studio system, right? They, they simply went and hired uh, the best screenwriters and the best director and the best stars to make what should have been a formulaic paint by numbers movie, you know, uh, and they ended up with one of the greatest movies of all time. And I think, you know, Guns N' Roses was another band that was playing the game of playing the clubs on the Sunset Strip, like hundreds of other bands trying to get, win the lottery and get signed to the big record deal um, and get their album out there so that they could be uh, the next big thing. And it just happened to catch lightning in a bottle these five guys who were so incredibly talented at the right time, the right place, um, and, the, and the right headspace to make an album that is as remarkable as it was. And they, they also had the, the time and the financial resources to make this album as great as it was because not a cheap album to make. In 1987 dollars, this thing cost $370,000 plus the $75,000 signing bonus they got. So Geffen was into them for roughly half a million dollars before this thing even came out, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think you hit on a key thing, uh, Mike, the, the, the way the guitars play off each other. Um, one of the marks of great musicians is that they listen to each other and i think more so than any other album even the aerosmith albums um there is a constant back and forth uh reciprocity happening between izzy's guitars and slash's guitars where they are snarling and sputtering and simultaneously rude and tasty and being informed by what the other players are playing and playing off of that and 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 going back and forth and it's just i mean it, it the energy of that alone is incredible yeah. not to mention the fact that they somehow managed to have a really in-depth knowledge of classical songwriting in terms of melodies and song structures, but never in a way that sounds formulaic or cliche, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, you've got, you know, stuff, I mean, Slash is playing some very sophisticated kind of uh, polyrhythmic uh, syncopated parts you know, which to this day, I don't know if any other guitar player has ever been able to uh, really, really mimic, um, you know, his use of double stop bends, um, mm -hmm. really. And not only that, but it's also harmonically sophisticated. And I'll get into a, a great example of that in, in Welcome to the Jungle. But 
the the mm. production on this album too, um, really adventurous guitar tones. Um, it's funny mm. if you were to take every single part on this album and solo it up, you would not necessarily say that's the greatest guitar tone ever or the greatest bass tone or or drum sound, but it all works cohesively as a whole. And you can clearly hear every single part by every single musician. It's all hard panned. And like that in and of itself is something you just don't hear on other hard rock albums from this period. Um, You know, musical influences, you've got hard rock obviously, but there's also folk and funk and punk and blues and metal and thrash and glam and pop and it's all, just this perfect amalgamation and it kicks off with welcome to the jungle which again kicks off with the, if you had the vinyl this would be the the g side because apparently you know when you bought the right, record yeah. the, ins- the inside label wasn't like an a and a b side it was right the g it was the g and, and the, the r side, side. <laughs> which is interesting because obviously there's a, tra- a long-standing tradition to name your band uh, after a loose euphemism for either male or female sexual organs right nine inch nails and oh. the slits and whatever and guns and roses is one of the few <laughs> bands that managed to come up with a classic name that actually does both guns and roses so yeah and then, then obviously the gun side is the aggressive side. The roses side is the romantic, like the relationship side. Relationship right, side. Know. Yeah. So your thoughts about uh, Jungle John? Uh, it's one. It's uh, uh, one of the most perfect songs ever written. That opening guitar part sounds literally like a, uh, you know, like gunfire echoing off of a, you know, uh, uh, buildings. <laughs> What am I trying to say? Inside like a city, that howl that, um, you know, uh, Axel gives that's sort of like a um, someone in pain, but also like a police siren. Um, just, I mean, the, the rhythm of the riff itself, you know what I mean? It's just, you know, pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> there's, re- there's nothing to complain about. I mean, it's, it's, it's too good. The lyrics are, I mean, they're, the lyrics, I mean, I wish that they, they're, they're perfect, but I wish they had been more pointed, you know what I mean? Sort of giving us more detail of what's going on in the jungle, but I'll, I'll take it. You know what I mean? It's a little vague, but there's really nothing to complain about it. It's really just a perfect song. I mean, there's so much going on in it that's just absolutely, the little bends and fills that, you know, uh, Slash is doing, uh, Duff's bass playing is is phenomenal i mean he's just such a great i mean he gets even further in the album there's more moments where you're just like holy shit that's amazing i gotta stop swearing because this is the kids show but um you know what i mean there's really it's a it's a perfect song there's nothing wrong with it at all it's literally probably in the top 100 you know top 20 songs ever written in the last you know 100 years so mike you're yeah, again, I have to give, you know, Dave credit for introducing me to this band. I mean, thank goodness for that, because I wouldn't have known about it because I wasn't buying as many rock magazines as Dave was, you know, Dave's a resource, you know, you got to tap into that guy. Right. So, I mean, all thank of us, you, Dave. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, this, you know, was the opening track on the record, but it was also the first video, you know, and I think, um, you know, that's, they're sort of role playing in, in the video, because I think there's a scene where Axel gets off the bus in the video and Izzy's standing there in a street corner, which might even be La Brea and Six, you know, 
Lord knows if, if that's where, you know, where Axel arrived, but, you know, Izzy's kind of standing in a black leather jacket and doing his thing. Apparently he, you know, dealt drugs and all kinds of other things, you know, in addition to being a great musician. Um, but again, opening track is killer because the first thing you hear is, oh my God, you know, from Axel. You know? It's <laughs> like, okay, that just draws you in. It, it's so great. And like you said, John, that, that first riff is like a, it's almost like a machine gun in a way with the echoes and stuff. It's yeah, I, I keep in. trying to, I'm, I'm trying to put a visual to it. Like someone chipping away at a, a skyscraper, like someone yeah. falling off. Of, you know what I mean? Like there's a visual to it, but it, it you picture a, a sort of comic book night sky. You know what I mean? And sort of that's whenever, whenever that riff yeah. starts. But yeah. It's very yeah. cinematic, very, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but on top of that, you've got all this great, you know, sort of blues guitar playing that you know, Slash is doing and, um, you know, I mean, again, I talked about how many, you know, within each song, there might be anywhere from, you know, six or seven to nine different parts within the verse, a pre-chorus, a chorus, a whole solo section, a bridge and a breakdown, a whole different solo section, different key, and then another breakdown. You've got like nine parts. I mean, how, you know, for a, a debut album, there is so much maturity in terms of what they were doing. And I've also asked people that, you know, that I know now, since you know, living in Los Angeles, that, that have seen those guys, in those days and anybody you ask one person will say they were the best band I've ever seen and you you never knew what to expect it could be it could have been the most awesome show and then some people are like they were terrible like you know they could be it could be the worst show you had ever seen and these are people that saw you know them in the clubs like the troubadour and you know, the whiskey and i believe the country club but uh you know you, you don't get that when you hear the record you know you can't tell me that that you know every band has a good night every band has a bad night but you know this this album tells me that this is a band that could, could probably have a good night more so than, than most, you know, because the arrangements again are so mature and sophisticated and there's so much depth. You know, in addition to the, the execution, you've got such a great rhythm section. You've got a great groove, you know, Duff, you know, I mean, we talk about Duff and his bass playing. I've never seen the, the MTV documentary um, where he was saying when he moved here, he was a drummer. And he's like, well, you know, there's a lot of drummers in town. And like, he was a, play, a guitar player. He's like, there's a million guitar players in LA. I'll play bass just to get my foot in the door. Uh huh. Well, you know, if, if you took up bass as like a third instrument and you play that well, you know, give the guy some credit, man. He's an, uh, to me, he's one of the most identifiable bass players and bass tones in rock. You know, it, it was like a, a, an offshoot for him in a way. And he's able to play really complex and melodic and interesting parts, almost like a guitar player at times, but then also able to play and lock in with the drums Rhythm, yeah, he's, and, and become rhythmic when necessary, too. He is really yeah. one of the best bass players. And I, I almost feel guilty for not ever realizing that until now, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And, you know, we should mention, too, the drum tracks for this album were recorded you know, they were in the studio for what, like more than six months or whatever. But like uh, the drum tracks were done, depending on where you read, somewhere between six days and two weeks. So roughly one to two tracks a day. Um, mm. And Stephen Adler, I think, doesn't get the credit that he deserves because he is so clearly playing just for the song on all of these songs, you know, and he's yeah. got such a great feel. He's obviously, they weren't trying to fit him to a click track or record him to a drum machine or anything like that. And he plays the parts differently in different sections and stuff, but it's got such a groove and a swagger to it. And it has tons of space, which gives Izzy and Slash the freedom and, and the, you know, to, to do all the wonderful things that they're doing. 
Well, that's that American rock and roll thing, that the ability to have space there. Uh, yeah. but, it's, but, but it's also influenced by, you know, British bands like the Stones and Humble Pie. I mean, you know, look at Kiss. They always, you know, cite, you know, English bands. And, you know, if like Led Zeppelin had two guitar players, imagine how cool that would have been, you know, that were of equal strength, you know, but either way. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so Welcome to the Jungle. I mean, obviously it's a song about coming to L.A., right? Um, yeah. And the thing about L.A., is that if you're a reasonably talented musician or a particularly good-looking young woman, um, yes, especially during that time, people would say, hey, you should come to L.A. to make it in, in the big time and be a model or a rock star or whatever. And it was the place you could go to you know, reinvent yourself and pursue your dreams. But the flip side of that was... Although you had total freedom, nobody cared if you lived or died, right? So that was the dark side of it. Um, there was no safety net um, beyond, you know, what you were able to cobble together from uh, living on the street, basically. And, and so that, to me, is partially why this song works, because it's so honest about the dark side of that. Um, I mentioned before with uh, harmonic sophistication. So mm -hmm. in this intro... This song isn't really in any one key. Like the verses mm -hmm. are sort of based around A, the chorus is based around E. So, you know, if you were to analyze it from a music theory point of view, you could say it's really in E or possibly A. But, um, but just in the intro, yeah. it starts out based around B, okay? Yeah. And then the final chord before the classic riff kicks in is B, but Slash is playing some dissonant notes on top of that, that's really kind of, he's playing like a bending up to a G sharp and he's playing an E note, which is really turning that B chord into what is an E chord, right? So not to get too into the, the details of this, but then there's also, there's also the F sharp in there, which is creating kind of a dissonance. In, in rock and roll, there's what's called a five of five chord. Okay, and five of five means like, so say you've got a song in the key of A, okay, and your five chord would be E, but one of the ways that you can get to the E is by going to B, okay, mm -hmm. to pivot off that because the, the B chord is the five of the E chord if you were mm -hmm. in the key of E, but you're not. So what they do is they go to the B chord and by playing the notes over top of it that are in the E chord, <laughs> they turn the five of five chord into the chord that you're anticipating harmonically and melodically, but still keeping those, those, those the tension of those notes that don't fit into that chord underneath it. And then it resolves down to into A. a. Yes, and let me say that you know I, there was a time where I played in a Guns N' Roses tribute band uh, for about a year or two, um, and I was I was like the, you know the Izzy guy, so I got to learn all all those cool parts that nobody really hears. Everybody thinks oh Guns N' Roses Slash, you know, but no, but like Izzy's like you know the cool one. He's the one that's in my opinion probably writing a lot of these songs. But anyhow, yeah, to your point, Dave, about uh, resolving from the B to the uh, the A for the verse. When what that lick that you're talking about, I think it's actually Izzy's lick because it's on the left pan left, and it's it's almost um, um, when you're playing in the A major position, you know, like you know the F sharp, which you're really, you know second. This is all technical, like second fret. So like he's Izzy's basically playing like an A major scale over the B, which makes no sense whatsoever, but it works in terms of resolving to the A for the verse. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's totally like A major, like almost like country bends, you know, almost like, you know, it's been in like the G string up to, you know, the, the B string. I, totally, yeah, I, I, know I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and here's something that I, in my research that I caught. Um, so the phrase, welcome to the jungle, had actually been used before by one of Axel's favorite bands, Hanoi Rocks. Uh, from the album Two Steps from the Move, they have a song called Underwater World, not to be confused with John's underwater world. Um, yeah. and oh my God, jeez. That, that has the line, welcome to the ocean, welcome to the sea, welcome to the jungle deep inside of me. Mm -hmm. um, other interesting fact about this song is the whole story of when Axel met the street guy who said, you know where you are, baby, you're in the jungle, you're going to die. That wasn't Los Angeles. That was New York. Prior to this, Axel had tried to move to New York or whatever, and that didn't work out. But so there is a bit of kind of retrofitting kayfabe that's that's going on here. That you know, kind of just just talking about the idea of the big bad city in general, and you can kind of see that from his lyrical perspective because it's almost written from the perspective of Axel as this kind of. Uh, sadistic Fagin-like pimp, you know, who is like welcoming this person to, to this world saying like, yeah, I'll hook you up with whatever you need unless you cross me and I'll kill you, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. but- uh, But, yeah, but also with that sort of you know, streetwise knowledge in a way, like, you know, this, this office comes from experience. Uh, to me, I don't, I don't read this as something where it's a put on, like, some, oh, like no. somebody said, you know, I'm gonna write a song about, you know, living in Los Angeles or New York. Like this doesn't sound like somebody sat down and put pen to paper and just, you know, was in, in the Midwest somewhere and just dreaming of that. Like this seems yeah, to me it's, like- It's a first, uh, it's a, yeah, it's young and hungry. Kiss could never write a song like this now because they are so separated yeah. from the jungle. But yeah, someone like these guys, this is totally perfect for them. And I think part of the key to that is that Axel was actually a little bit older right? He was mm -hmm. in his mid to late 20s. I think he's probably 26 when he was making this record, you know. So, yeah. so he had been around the block a few times. Um, was he run and, out of Indiana or whatever? I mean, that's basically what it like. He... Yeah, yeah. He came from small town, Indiana, uh, him and Izzy, and, and he he had a, a bad reputation there, shall we say. Um, but uh, but I think that the fact that he is slightly older gives him the perspective to to write a song like this that basically sets the template for everything that else that comes on the record. You know, there mm -hmm. is the vulnerability. There's you know, you you weren't wouldn't hear Motley Crue write a a, song, a lyric like "You're a very sexy girl who's very hard to please," right? Mm -hmm. They weren't they mm -hmm. were they weren't talking <laughs> about that aspect of life in the bedroom. Um, but but also. To me, this whole album and that it establishes it which with this first song, it's about the tension between lust and love and pride and desperation and cynicism and hope and power and vulnerability. And I think it captures it perfectly in this song. So moving on to It's So Easy. Um that starts with that has the bass riff that the do 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 you know what i mean that kind of thing that comes in that's actually really well played it's too simple to be believed and then it resolves into the song uh the song again strikes me a little bit almost as 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it strikes me a little bit almost as like an easy throwaway song. But again, there's so much more going on in it um, than most bands throwaway songs um, that it's it's and it's interesting because it's so they're so sort of macho in the lyrics. Um, but not necessarily that, like you said before, there's almost like a I don't know. It, it, they, I mean, I guess the whole story is about them taking advantage of women that they were sort of essentially living off of while they were living in Los Angeles. Right. I mean, that's kind of the or it's so, you know, and they're sort of almost like smirking at how how easy it is that they got away with what they're doing uh, musically. It's but again, and it, but it's 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 great. I mean, there's nothing you know, the, the song is super strong. Like, I really like the song, even though it's kind of mean to women and, you know, um, but it's still, it's a great song. Mike, your opinion? Um, in a way, this to me could have been, this might sound you know, completely opposite, this could have been almost like really the opening track to the record with it, because I think they used to open a lot of their sets in, in early days with this song. It's kind of jarring in a way, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool riff, and I've, I've read something recently where supposedly, you know, even though, you know, a lot of the songs, have felt, well, actually most of it, all the songs are credited to the whole band with a few exceptions. Like you have some outside writers like West Arkeen, who's apparently, you know, the co-writer on this song. Um, you know, but, you know, supposedly this song existed as like a, you know, a Duff McKagan kind of riff, which makes sense to me because I think he kind of brings in the punk influence in a way. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's how that riff plays. Yeah, it's kind of like it's so their simple version of, yet of, so great. Yeah, but if it's if that kind of like you know, B flat, uh, G E, it's it's a weird chord change. It's not it's not the most pleasing and you know, melodic chord change. You know, it's very jarring. And I, I dig it. Um, you know, and the cool thing too is you have um, you know those background vocals from Izzy. You know that that are I'm I'm sorry, background vocals uh, vocals from from Duff. You know, he he's doing the stuff. So it's you know it's there's a lot of energy. The solo is great. You know, the, the bridge is cool. I mean. Yeah, you know, and then, and then too is where they start, you know, getting into the cussing, you know, <laughs> why don't you just fuck off with that? I think I did the math. I think they, they cuss at least nine times on this record, so. Yeah, and you get the, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I get the idea that if Paul Stanley had ended up producing this yeah. record, he, he would have shaved those rough edges off. Uh, yeah. And, and you're, you know, I'm so glad that he, he didn't, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I to me this song is like the the child of the Stones' satisfaction, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it sort of plays it both ways. It's it's kind of a stream of conscious song about how yeah, it's so easy when everybody's, uh, you know, kissing my ass and, and and behaving the way I want them to and giving me easy sex. But at the same time, he says, you know, it's so easy, but nothing seems to please me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and also I think, you know, I mean, talking about uh, living in LA, you know, on one of the, the dark politically incorrect truths is that before the age of Uber and, um, ride sharing and stuff like that. Los Angeles is not designed in such a way that one can easily uh, take public transportation to get home after a night of partying. And I, I would say that there are many the young rocker from the 80s who probably engaged in dangerous uh, driving under the influence if we're if we're being honest and you know so the song talks about that and you know it, it's interesting that they're not it is macho but they're not 
putting themselves out as like, yeah, we're the guys that are cool. It's, it's, it's more like, yeah, we're the guys that hate the guys that think that they're cool. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we're, you know, like there is this idea of, again, politically incorrect by today's standards, but, um, I'm not using this woman so much as she is useful to me because we're both bored and broke and have nothing better to do. So we might as well have sex because at least that's a way to pass the time. <laughs> There's almost a level of desperate sadness to it. I mean, you know what I mean? In terms of the way that he's sort of talking about, it. he seems angry that things are going that way, even though it's, you know, he's, 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 sarcastic in the way that he says it's so easy you know what i mean so he's, yeah he's, it's very it's very yeah. snide and sarcastic and yeah. then also the idea of he's self-aware of of the idea of himself as the bad boy who doesn't have any money but is going to pull the chicks anyhow because mm. he has that allure you might almost say he's willing conscious of and willing to use that illusion yes yeah yeah. And, and also, you know, that sort of, you know, jagged, um, you know, lyric theme, I mean, the guitar, you know, complements that in a way, totally, you know, because it sounds like the guitar is pissed off, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, well, you know, also too funny, funny note about the tones in this record, you know, a lot of people see, you know, the videos like uh, Welcome to the Jungle where Slash is playing what they think is a Gibson Les Paul. Well, you know, the actual guitar that was used for this record wasn't officially a Gibson. It was a, a Gibson copy, you know, so everybody thinks oh, I need to go out and get a Les Paul and I'm going to sound like Slash. Well, you know, and even though Gibson has done reissues of you know, the official Slash model, the guitar that he's in this record was a copy of a Les Paul. It was, you know, handmade, you know, at, at a shop in Los Angeles somewhere, because I guess they were searching for guitar tones. Slash was using guitars like Jackson guitars, they had like tremolo bars and, you know, different, mm -hmm. you know, scale necks and stuff. Da, da, da. So then they're like, we need to get a tone, you know, what are we going to do? So they found this Les Paul. And they found this uh, as a Marshall amp from SIR that they rented. And that became you know, the tone of, of Slash's overdose. And apparently Slash liked that amp so much that he basically told you know, his road crew to say, listen, just tell SIR that you know, the thing was stolen, it was missing. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and to this day, I don't know where that amp is, uh, but you know, I, I assume he probably still has it. But that was such part and parcel to, to the tone of this record that, um, you know, where he was like, listen, I don't care this, I'm keeping this amp. <laughs> if you're not gonna sell it to me, I'm gonna keep it and tell me it, it's stolen, it's gone, I'm keeping it. Now, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, in my research, mm. my understanding of how this album was recorded, so uh, Axel and Slash spent months and months recording their guitar parts and vocal parts. And, um, and just before they were gonna start mastering it, Slash went to them and said, I don't like my guitar tone. I want to redo all of my solos, okay? And so they they had put so much into this thing already that they they rented uh, a small studio. I want to say it's that place where they used to have the after parties uh, uh, south of Sunset on Highland. You know, there's a oh. small studio right there. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, I forget the name, but. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I think he like basically redid most if not all of his lead guitar parts in the 11th hour um which i think is why this album is so i mean he his playing on this album is so fantastic and so much better 
than anything, not to say stuff he did after this wasn't great, but not as great as it is here because he was basically playing the game of, can I beat this part? It's already recorded. The people already like it. Can I do it one better? And he was able to do it in such a way that he didn't have the rest of the band and the producer breathing down his neck about like, okay, we got two hours to get this solo. We got to move on and do something else. It was just mm -hmm. him and an engineer in the studio. Yeah, and apparently he likes to record in control room too, to the point where like if he needs to get feedback, he won't stand next to the amp. And this is technical talk, but you know, if you want to get feedback from a guitar, you need to be engaged with the amp. You know, they have, there should be a loop there. You know, yeah. and apparently they came up with a system on later records where you could just like make the amp in the control in the uh, you know the room where the, the amp is, is mic'd up. You could have a separate amp in the control room that was you know attached by a volume box, and you could pull in feedback. So the, he definitely found a way to. It, it, if anybody records two knows that it's easier to hear things in the control room when you hear the, the mix back and you can play along to it. When you're in a room blasting with a band, it's, it's impossible to keep a good tempo and, and to get a good track. So no wonder he was able to do what he did in terms of once the tracks were recorded, he could do his thing and, and, and re-record parts and make it sound, uh, you know, to his liking in a way. Yeah. Night Train. Uh, well, the last song was about um, sarcastic use of sex. This one is all about uh, sarcastic use of alcohol, though I don't think it's very, I mean, it's it's an ode to getting messed up and it's a great song. It opens with freaking cowbell. You can't get, go wrong with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's and it, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it. I've never had night train before because it terrifies me. It'd probably tear a hole in my stomach. But I, I from what I understand, it does, you know, make you angry and get you feel like pretty lightheaded as well. So, well, you know how most wine is made from grapes. <laughs> <laughs> Night train is actually made from like, I believe apple seeds. Uh, um, so it's, it's a different kind of high, you know, this is years before the days of two buck Chuck. And I can tell you from personal experience, uh, you know, if you were to say split one bottle of Night Train with a friend, you would be feeling very, very good. If at that point you decided to make the decision to split a second bottle with said friend, you would spend the rest of your night puking your guts out. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, but so it's like, it's perfect though. I mean, the way that they, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's not a great song. I mean, it's a song about drinking a, essentially a, a borderline turpentine, but it's, it's still like a great song. You know what I mean? Like now I wanted to go out and buy Night Train, you know, it was like, I mean, Enjoy in moderation. That's all right. I can say. Okay. I'll split a bottle. Maybe we can split, we'll do it in thirds with the three of us, but uh, I could probably mail it to you and stay good. So the, um, yeah, no, it's a good song. It starts with that cowbell, you know, I mean, I love it. It's totally fun. Um, nothing, you know, I mean, nothing really to report about it, but it just, it just rocks, you know, I mean, it's one of those great, you know, it's the, it, Guns N' Roses takes the cliche and, and ups the ante to, um, I wouldn't say almost perfection, but they always do one better on the song. You know, there's tons of songs about getting, getting wasted, but this is just a great, you know, energetic song that's better than most about getting wasted. Sorry, Mike, you go ahead. No, no absolutely. And, and, you know, from the, the lyric perspective, John, I mean, you know, 
this song sounds like it comes from experience. You know, they're, they're basically yeah. saying, I'm on the night train, bottoms up, I'm on the night train, and I can never get enough. I'm on the night train, never going down. You know, like, you know, okay, you're going to use one of the most cheap booze <laughs> as an example of a song, and that somehow is going to be something that you, you can you know, outdo the next guy. You know, that's what this song says to me. But cool thing about this, this record and also this song is, you know, there was a time where things like wah-wah guitar and cowbell, those were like taboo in terms of, you know, songwritings and stuff. And they embrace all that on this record. You know, particularly the intro is cool use of cowbell and hi-hat for the intro. You know, usually it's either one or the other, not both, you know, but in this case, you've got cowbell and, and hi-hat for the intro. Uh, but, you know, again, the cool thing about, you know, a, a new song when it, when it hits you and speaks to you is, to me, this song was something that I, I could swear I've heard before. It sounds like some other classic riff to this day. I cannot figure out what it is, but I felt like I, I felt like I've heard this, like you know, much like a song like you know, not to throw in other bands, but like you know, when I went to see Def Leppard play and they were playing um, "Pour Some Sugar on Me," I felt like I knew that song, even though I didn't know that song. You know, I, I it wasn't a single at the time, and I heard it live, and I thought I need to sing along to this. You know, this song, that riff, just sounds so classic. So it's so bluesy. Uh, I thought. Is this a cover or not? But but it's not. It, it's a well-written song. It, you know, I, you know. Again, when you've got this many great songs, we're only like the what third song into the album, and you've got all these great songs. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And yeah. just the fact it starts off you with that A chord. I mean, okay, A flat because they're tuned down a half step. But yeah. that, you and I have talked about the the greatest A chords in in rock and roll, and how you know the the one that that kicks in in Cold Gin is the one that you know like that just takes the puts the wind through your hair when you hear that live in the right time the right place yeah. but that a chord in this song is a, a a very close second to that uh when the whole yeah. band comes in with that and question for you guys any mm -hmm. insight into what a rattlesnake suitcase is isn't that just an old blues reference you know what i mean i mean you mean like is it a euphemism for something i don't know well, he says, I got a rattlesnake suitcase under my arm. Is that a, a, a suitcase that has rattlesnake skin on it? Is that a suitcase? Oh, I would assume that it would have rattlesnake skin on it. Yeah. 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 It sounds it like was, something like, you know, an old you know bluesman would Robert have. Johnson would carry around. Yeah. I assume there's you know, some sort of direct reference mm. to, you know, right. Muddy, or, uh, who do you love? Uh, Tombstone. Oh, Bo Diddley. Yeah. Yeah. Bo Diddley. yeah. Um, I've never seen one for sale at Macy's, but, you know, but. Uh, right. <laughs> Um, I love the line too. I, I smoke my cigarette with style, which because you know, again, politically in, incorrect cigarettes are bad. Kids don't smoke, but you know, it, you you can't lie and say that you know guys don't look cool smoking them. Uh, so, <laughs> and while playing guitar, like playing a lead guitar, you got a cigarette right, exactly. hanging around. You know, I mean, how do you do all those things at the same time? I don't know. I can't do it, and I don't smoke, so. Right. The other lines that stick out, you know, uh, I tell you, honey, you can make my money tonight. Uh, you, uh, you don't get the impression that he's actually saying that she is a hooker, per se, just commenting upon the the purely transactional nature of their relationship getting wasted together. He's going to use her credit cards and he's going to do whatever for her to make up for that. Um, but the the whole idea of getting wasted as a means of escape from the slums again mm -hmm. rings true in a kind of Bertel Brecht kind of 
un, you know, living in the underground kind of way that uh, even bands like Motley Crue never really expressed quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, from, you know, a, a, you know, a debut album from, from a band, you know, that you know, the rest of the country, meaning, you know, the rest of, you know, the United States, Southern LA didn't know about, I mean, this, again, this sounds like, okay, that's what LA is like. I, I believe it, you know, it, it sounds like first person perspective and I, I can, I, I buy into it straight away. Yeah, I believe it. So then on to a song that is perhaps the first song that isn't about LA, Out to Get Me. Uh, that seems to be a one-way trip through Axel's psyche, you know what I mean? I think he has a lot of issues about being paranoid, that kind of stuff. The song itself, um, it's very chaotic with the way the guitars are and stuff like that. It definitely is. Um, guitars piled on top of guitars on top of guitars kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't, it, This I'll be perfectly honest, the song doesn't stand out to me except as a way to sort of show Axel, you know, who Axel is, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's sort of a nice, it seems like it's a song he wrote early on in his writing career. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree, John. It seems like, you know, he, he had a story to tell from, you know, where he was raised and, and this is what we get when we listen to this song, I, for sure. Um, but again, we've mentioned too how how great the guitar interplay is on this record. And there's a lot of space between, you know, what Izzy's doing and what Slash is doing. There's almost like a ba-da-da, and there's like a space and then Slash doing the chugging rhythm behind that. I mean, again, put some headphones on and listen to this record. You'll, you'll be blown away about the things that you didn't notice the first time you listened to this record. It, it, it's great in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, and again, when the guy says, I'm, I'm fucking innocent, you know, he screams in such a way that, you know, it sounds like he's reacting to something, you know, like it, it doesn't sound like, again, the guy's making up a story. He's just basically saying, I felt this way, you know, I, I was accused of something, da, 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 and, you know, whether or not, you know, I'm guilty of it, I'm telling you my side of the story. And, and you know, it, it, again, it, it kind of sounds like um, a punk a punk song in a way. Yeah. And, and the, last, the last thing I'll say about it too is we mentioned how, how a lot of these songs have a lot of different parts. I mean, it changes, it changes key, you know. <laughs> You know, it, it's there's. I mean, it's so sophisticated. I mean, it's the kind of thing where if you sat a guy down and say, "Okay, play me this song on guitar," they'd really have to do their homework. There's so much going oh, on. Oh, there's a ton of stuff. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I say, you know, to say that this is a lesser song is only by saying it's a lesser song compared to some of the greatest rock songs ever written that we've just heard previously. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think and any normal rock album, this would be any of these songs would be at least a great song. Um, I, I do think that, yeah, you're right. It, it does kind of play upon his illusions of, of, of persecution or delusions of persecution and whatever, but they may not be delusions, right? Because he was a young kid, you know, long haired kid growing up in a small Indiana town where presumably you, once you have long hair and you get busted once or twice for drinking pot or, you know, drinking beer or smoking pot, you know, the cops, are, you're marked, right? It's it's like yeah. the West Memphis Three. Like if yes. something gets stolen or broken or defiled, you're their go-to guy. And, you know, whatever rights you think you may have uh, may be a figment of your imagination. I mean, the first time I ever heard about Guns N' Roses, there was an article about them. Uh, I think it was in Rock Scene, and they were talking mm-hmm. about how um, there was a, a rape charge that was uh, being um, 
put against Axel and and they and and they Axel had some explanation about no nobody was raped we just threw all of her clothes out the window or something like I mean like some <laughs> ridiculous absurd story but like uh, so you know I, I think this he definitely has a side to him that is what what, what do they call it opposition oppositional defiance oppositional. Mm. Uh, oh, geez, oppositional defiance disorder. And I think that that's reflected in this song. Um, but there's also, you know, the line, every time you think you know just what you're doing, that's when your troubles exceed. And that, to me, is one of life's great truths expressed very succinctly in a rock lyric. I would say there's not a week that goes by that those lyrics don't flash in my mind, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, from personal experience. So yeah. moving on, Mr. Brownstone. Uh, this is actually my favorite uh, Guns N' Roses song. This is the one that uh, that stood out to me when I heard them play um, in front of um, the cult. Um, mm. And again, it's a great story song. I mean, just the way that he sort of describes addiction um, with, you know, it was a little, wasn't a little, you know, I mean, just great ways to sort of do it. Like it just, I mean, it, it's, it's really well done. Usually songs about addiction are like stupid, you know what I mean? Or overly, um, overly played out like Hotel California. You know what I mean? Overly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Over Dramatized? Yeah, I guess that's the way to put it. Yeah. Whereas this sort of just describes it very, again, they take the cliched rock song, which is addiction, and they turn it into something better and, you know, more classic. So at least that's my view of it. Mike? It's a killer tune. And anytime I see these guys live, I always want to hear this song for sure. I mean, you've got that cool drum intro, which is great. And the groove is awesome. You got that weird sort of flanging sound on the guitar and stuff. It's cool. It's like a Bo Diddley beat almost. I mean, yeah, who yeah. do you love? It's that classic yeah. Bo Diddley. Not an easy riff to play though. No, no. And then, yes, and then you throw like, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, Hendrix sort of wah-wah over top of that, you know, which when, again, when I heard this record, you know, I was, I thought, okay, I need to get all these things. I need to get a wah-wah. I need to get a talk box. I need all these things, you know, and you get one for your birthday after this record comes out. So, okay, cool. You know, but it, again, killer tune, um, great guitar interplay because there's so much like back and forth with the guitars. Cause like Izzy will do that to sing on the high strings and Slash is playing open chords, you know, on Les Paul. I mean, it, it, uh, it was so fun to listen to this record again, but uh, you know, Again, from the songwriting perspective, I mean, when they say, you know, I used to do a little bit, little bit and do it and a little got more and more, you know, I don't see this as somebody making up a story. You know, it, to me, it, no. it tells me some, these guys you know, are speaking you know, from the, the perspective of, of experience for sure. I think at any given time, especially during the making of this record, two to three of these guys were strung out on heroin. Uh, which is part of the reason yeah. why it took so long to make this record is you had Izzy, Slash, and Steven that were all messing with it to various degrees. Um, yeah, I, I love this song. I mean, I, I, I think the line, I don't worry about nothing because worrying's a waste of my time, is, is that is the classic California rock and roller attitude, right? Um, 
I do think there's a little bit of kayfabe in the line, get around, get on the bus around uh, 11, sip in a drink and mm-hmm. have them fine. I don't think these guys had been getting on too many tour buses by the time they were making this record, right? Um, but certainly they would be soon enough. Yeah, and to that point too, Dave, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there was um, an interview with Slash around the time of, the MTV documentary where he would they were talking about you know Slash's upbringing apparently like I think Slash's dad designed album covers for for Geffen I want to say yeah 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 right so you know were they sort of the the darlings of Geffen in, in that in that regard did they have an in you know they have sort of you know a foot in the door I don't know <laughs> but I find it you know interesting you know that uh, you know yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's weird things like that. Like Nikki Six's uncle was like the head of Warner Brothers music or something, but they didn't get signed to Warner Brothers. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like there yeah. are those weird connections that you wonder if they they helped them. Although that reminds me, there was some some quote from Slash too about the the band getting signed, where he said something like, "All of the people that needed to be slept with got slept with, so we could get this deal." You know, <laughs> which makes you, which really raises more questions than it answers. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But either way, I mean, the album's so great. I mean, you know, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. The other labels didn't pick up on it, but also too, it's also amazing that the album came out and had literally no traction until almost a year later. Oh, we'll get we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Speaking of the subject matter of the song, heroin addiction. So, uh, Stephen Adler used to live in the same building as our bass player, and we would see him, you know, fairly regularly, just kind of wandering around. And he wasn't in Guns N' Roses at this time. This is after he got kicked out. But uh, you know, he always had a big smile on his face, and he always seemed real friendly and nice, and would say hi. And uh, and the thing that was bad was that uh you know it on at least several occasions uh the police kept getting called to his apartment because various women kept ODing and had to be like taken out by the paramedics on stretchers and stuff so you know these guys were living it for better or for worse there was there was an interview with him at some point that I somehow mistakenly watched with my dad and my dad was like that guy is messed up you know what I mean? Like, not even knowing who he was. You know what I mean? It was- oh, he had a stroke, so you okay. know, that's well, part of I, his. Oh, well, maybe that yeah. was it, because my dad was like, "This guy appears to be high in this interview." So, yeah, yeah. Um, Paradise City. What could be said? One of the greatest songs ever. Apparently, it wasn't like going to be a big T word or something like that. I don't know, but um. Uh. You can't, you, there's nothing to say about the song. I mean, this is one of those songs that would be like reviewing Stairway to Heaven. What's interesting about it is that it has the, it goes from that great chromatic, like into the more open chord thing that they're doing, um, which is, you know, I mean, it's not like it's not been done before, but it's, you know, it definitely has a lot of power behind it, has a nice sort of punk vibe to it at the same time as sort of a nice folk vibe probably should have been written by the little wretches instead of the instead of guns and roses but it definitely <laughs> does it really i mean it's perfect it's really there's like i said there's really nothing wrong with it i remember like inadvertently trying to write a song and writing it without realizing i was writing paradise city again 
you know what I mean? Like just sitting down and like, and then it'll go like this and it'll go like this and that's Paradise City. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, it's really a great song. Go ahead, Mike, what do you think? Uh, again, I, I mentioned you know, uh, songs like, um, you know, on, on, rest, on the rest of the record, like we hear this song, you think I must have heard the song somewhere before. It, it sound it sounded so established when the first time you heard it. It was, it was so you know, it drew you in. And you got that great sort of chorusy guitar intro and, and the cool you know drum licks at the beginning. And then when they kick into that, I call it like the you know the kids parasite kind of you know groove. That yeah, is a great dramatic groove. ascending thing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's so dramatic. But then you know when they, like John said when they go in the chorus, it just opens wide up and it's huge. I mean it was. Like you knew this song was gonna be in the set, if not you know the closer of, of the show when you saw these guys live, and it's you know it's got a great bridge, you know, with the so far away parts, and also too from a, a guitar playing perspective, this you know Slash is playing in the breakdowns of this song introduced me to the, the fact you could play like you know major scale licks over these chord changes in a way, you know, mm. it, it it sounded so because every the time was playing like either like like Jakey e. Lee or, or, you know, or George Lynch, they were playing these crazy scales that I couldn't make any sense of. But when Slash would play something, it made sense to me, you know? And it, yeah. that spoke to me as a guitar player because not that what he does is easy, but it's, it's, it's accessible. And you, you, can, you can hear that. You hear some tone. You hear some, some passion in that. And that, that, that spoke to me as, as a guitar player. And to this day, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what Slash does on guitar because he's such a great blues guitar player and he can work his way around the neck like nobody can. It's amazing. It's that some people can be boring, but to me, he could play all day and not have a vocal on the whole damn thing. And I'm happy with it because he's an awesome guitar player. But again, this song is killer. It's a classic and it's a classic straight away. The minute he dropped the needle on the wax it was great. Yeah. I definitely think he is the premier guitar player of his generation. I mean, just in terms of his, his phrasing and a sense of melody. I mean, there's really nobody else that, that comes close. Um, and I think it, this is such a great song because it's so poignant because the, the whole point of it is that there is no city like that. Right. I mean, like the reason why people come to L.A. isn't because it's a paradise, but it is the place where you can make your your dreams come true. You know, it's where all the pretty girls go. So you, you go shopping at Ralph's and you see girls that look like they should be supermodels. But no, the hills aren't green. They're on fire. And, you know, the, you're stepping over homeless people to get there. And so, yes, it would be the, the perfect city if you could have a combination of all the opportunities here in a city that felt like home that took care of you and that city is is paradise because it doesn't exist in reality and um <laughs> to me the my favorite guns and roses lines of all time are in this song and people never hear it because by the time it gets to this point in the song slash is kind of playing a slightly higher guitar part that's almost verging on a lead uh mm -hmm. during the verse and and the lyric is captain america's been torn apart now he's a court gesture with a broken heart i mean that to me is the pinnacle of Guns N' Roses lyrics and as relevant today, if not more so than when it was originally written in, in the, the uh, mid to late eighties. My Michelle. Okay, so the, uh, I know the story behind the song, uh, Axel's driving around with a friend. I forget, I, I, I could have read this on Wikipedia or something like that. And they were like, you should write a song about, the, about me. And he writes a nice, beautiful romantic song. And then instead, decides to tell the truth. Now, where this song is great is that it has a lot of porned, <laughs> porn, 
<laughs> not, but a lot of pointed details in it um, that sometimes I find are lacking in Guns N' Roses songs, but I'm always sort of fascinated by how well Guns N' Roses writes the universal that becomes personal. But this one seems to have a lot of sort of personal lines in it, at least the first verse, songs about heroin and, you know, her dad, mom's not around, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, and then it's, it's a great story song. I mean, it'd be a great sort of country western song if they could write a country western song about that. Um, the, uh, musically, again, it doesn't, I mean, it's got a lot of different, the, just music, I'm not even going to bother talking about because you guys have a better handle on it, but there's just so much more going on in it. Um, you know, it's almost like he tried to write like an Elton John song. Um, you know, or something like that, like with a lot of details, but in a Guns N' Roses mold, you know. So I, I, I really like it. It's one of my favorites on the album. Good, Mike. Your opinion? No, good, good point, John, about the Elton kind of Elton John kind of approach, because you get the sort of pedal point um, intro to the song in a yeah. way. You know, the descending, you know, riffs and you know, they're you know counterbalancing the rest of the chords. Um, but I kind of laughed this week listening to it because I haven't listened to it in, in a while, but. You know, that sort of synthesizer sound reminded me of the beginning of Stonehenge from Spinal Tap. You know, <laughs> it just hit me like, oh, where have I heard that before? Oh, I just watched, you know, Spinal Tap two weeks ago. So it reminded me of that. But still, it, it's a killer riff, you know, and I, I don't want to know whether or not, you know, this is, you know, true to life stories of, of, you know, my Michelle, so to speak. But I suspect that, you know, there, there are parts of it that are definitely truthful in a way. Um, you know, it, it again, it, we're on the the R side of the record, right? So this is where we're in the relationship. Right. This is the first feminine side of the record, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great song. I mean, it, it, again, like when you hear these songs, this, you know, for a debut album, <laughs> these songs are so mature and so well executed and the arrangements are so great. You know, we mentioned that, you know, before, like these, a lot of these songs have so many different parts. I mean, there's like two different solo sections in this song, like, and they're completely independent of the verses and the choruses. I mean, there's so much... I mean, it's such an abundance of great riffs among these guys. You know, it's amazing. Uh, but the, the, the last thing I'll say about the song, and it's not really about the song itself, is I heard a story, I guess, you know, back in the days when they were playing clubs, um, and apparently uh, Michelle would, you know, show up at the venue and expect to be on the list. And, and there was a story where somebody witnessed Michelle going to the, you know, the door and saying, okay, I'm on the list, right? And they're like, no, 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 I, I don't see your name on the list. And apparently she said, listen, I'm on the list. They're like, no, no. And she said, listen, I'm my, my Michelle. I'm on the list. I'm my, my Michelle. I, I am on that list. <laughs> you know? So I don't know if she talked her way into it, but apparently there was you know, a scuffle where she had to tell you know, the door guy that you know, she was who she was and she was going to get in the show. So <laughs> yeah, so much for having a song written about you, right? Right. Yeah. So, so I guess Michelle Young was a girl that uh, Slash had dated when he was 14 and yeah, the, a lot of this is kind of uh, biographical about her. Um, this is the first time that we really get into Axel's sort of lyrical theme of, you know, you may be living the wildlife now and your life may be a train wreck, but hmm. the key to you saving yourself and redemption is finding true love, right? Hmm. Finding a real relationship, finding somebody that you can trust and count on. And that's kind of a a lyrical theme that Axel will go back to time and, and time again. There is a great bit of ambiguity, though, 
when in in the last line he says, "Honey, don't stop trying, and you'll get what you deserve." Right. Yeah. That could be good or it could be bad, yeah. depending on how you interpret that. Yeah. Um, I, I do think the song has kind of like a, especially at the beginning, that intro has kind of an interesting gothic kind of feel to it too, mm -hmm. uh, before it goes into the stomp, you know, rave up of of the same riff. But uh, but yeah, another another classic song that 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 feels torn from real life and probably is. Um, think about you. Uh, this is the only song I don't particularly like. I don't really. Uh... I don't know. I, I got nothing to say about it. Good, Mike. <laughs> I mean, I really, it just kind of felt like almost like it was there for filler. I'm sure I'm wrong. So Mike, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I mean, you know, I think you're right in, in, in terms of um, it's really not, you know, when you have so many great strong songs on this record, this is definitely one of those in a way, you know, it, to me, I don't know, it almost sounded like it was written you could tell it was probably written years before this record came out in a way like it seemed kind of dated by the time it was on wax in a way i mean it just didn't seem like that strong of a song in a way it seemed different um apparently the song you know existed as something that you know izzy had been working on before and i think uh is this a song that one some other guy that was in hollywood rose had co-written as well i think right definitely izzy i'm not sure about hollywood Rose. okay yeah. okay no i'm thinking of, of, of anyhow no, no, um yeah, I mean, there's a the takeaway is that there's a lot of great guitar playing on, on, on this song, but you know that doesn't make, make for a great song in a way. You know, I mean, it, it's a clever arrangement in a way, but it, it's it also seems kind of rushed tempo wise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you always you always feel like you're trying to catch up with the song. It literally it, feels like filler. I mean, it really. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Like, where where are you racing to? You know, maybe you know, yeah. It, <laughs> Maybe it's not the best version of the song. Maybe there's you know some other version of the song that's on, on the box that, that I haven't heard yet, but you know, it, it's definitely not one of the strongest songs on the record and debatable as to whether or not it should be on the record. You know? Interestingly enough, this is Tom Zutout's favorite song hmm. on the record, which I find fascinating because I do think that it comes across as being a little lyrically trite. Uh, you know, obviously it's a love song and he's talking about the time they got together being the best time he can remember but then he also seems to say that they're still together because he wants to stay with her to the very end and so you kind of go well why was that the best time if you're still together i don't know you know <laughs> yeah um yeah there's there's not not a great reciprocity between the music and the lyrical content you know they don't necessarily support each other fully um it does feel like a little bit of a throwaway song. I remember reading an interview with Slash when this album came out and he said, you know, in hindsight, I'm not sure why we played some of these songs as fast as we did, <laughs> you know, and, and he said, I think we were all conscious of the fact that there were lots of technical limitations uh, in our playing and, and, and gaps in our musicianship and simply speeding the songs up was a way to, <laughs> you know, hide that, ah, and, you know, okay. which, uh, which, you know, maybe this is a song that, that could have benefited from a, a slightly slower arrangement. Especially too, when you hear like the, uh, when they add in the acoustic guitars and the choruses, it, it almost seems like they're just kind of playing ahead of tempo in a way. And it's, it's a weird, yeah, it's very unsettling. Yeah, but also too, when I was saying that uh, there was a song that was co-written by somebody in Hollywood Rose, that was um, "Anything Goes," which we'll get to in, in a few minutes. So, yeah, 
Um, okay, now one of the all-time classic, romantic, poignant rock songs, Sweet Child of Mine. All right, I know you guys are going to, I mean, again, this is one of those songs that it's impossible to really review because everybody has agreed that it's probably one of the greatest songs ever. Um, I like it. I mean, I've heard, I like the guitar part that he's playing because, I mean, it almost sounds like he's just sort of playing like some sort of, I mean, it's an interesting chord that he would choose to arpeggiate. Um, and then, of course, my favorite part is that that amazing um bass part in the beginning that just mimics the vocal line and it's so not amazing it's you know what i mean it's or how am i going to say it? like i i figured it out on my own i remember at some point and i was sort of like oh look at you know and realizing it's it's pretty it's almost borderline cliche but it's not you know what i mean like it's a root and a fifth and a do 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 you know what i mean and that kind of stuff but so you, your your philosophy is if you can figure it out, it can't yeah, be that good. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm um, but uh, well, because when you first hear it, you're like, oh my god, that sounds so cool. Um, but yeah, I, that's all I'm going to talk about is just the bass playing, and it is is phenomenal, and probably the least talked about part of the song is that he really put a lot into it. There's a lot of interesting bass going on in the album. Now you guys can go ahead and talk about, I mean, lyrically it's, you know, it's cliched. It doesn't, you know, but the way that it, that Axel Howell makes it a little more, uh, you know, gutsy. All right, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't need to get into, you know, everybody's heard the song a bazillion times before, but you know, this easily could have been on an early uh, 70 stones record in a way with those sort of, you know, major chord changes. I mean, it works. Um, John, for sure that, you know, the bass playing and, and those licks are cool, in my opinion. I mean, in a way, you know, think about it. there are so many bands that, if, you know, they're coming around, coming out around this time, like, you know, you know, uh, Guns and Tesla and all the, it, like bass playing was like a, a premium in a way, like all, all of a sudden you're playing a lot of, you know, bass lines over these songs. And when we talk about interplay, we're not just talking about guitar interplay, we're talking about interplay with, with the bass and the drums yeah. as well. And, you know, it shows maturity because, you know, it's basically just a three chord song. But what they do gives it so much depth in terms of the breakdown of the guitars and Duff playing around, you know, the chord changes. You know, it's well executed. Yeah, it's a perfect um, song. I mean, there's really, you can't really complain about it. But in terms of that, that intro riff, I read something where I guess, you know, they were just kind of messing around with the song in rehearsal. And, you know, Slash's intro kind of sounds like something almost like a keyboard part, right? Uh, like a calliope. Yeah. yeah it was string skipping exercise that he was messing around with and he was playing it and Axel was like, hey, wait a minute, that sounds really cool. <laughs> Is that true? Well, I've heard that too. I don't know if that's, yeah. I, I don't know if it's true. Yeah, but, you know, it's either that or like, you know, somebody's just playing the chord change and Slash was like, hey, let me just play this over top of that. And I'll just, I'm going to make it seem, I'm going to show you how easy it is to play those three chords. I'm going to play something super melodic over top of that. I don't know. Yeah. It's debatable. Um, oh God, don't forget the bridge either. That, that where do we go? You know, I mean, that's a great, great transition in that song. That is something that I don't think people would write, you know, write in songs normally. It's a very creative part. And supposedly, supposedly the way that I've heard, yeah, I've heard the story too, is, is apparently Axel didn't actually know where to go with the song. So, 
Right. So he started singing, where do we go? But if you listen to the chords that the band starts playing under that, they, they were just like vamping and improvising. So they started playing the monkeys. Uh, I'm not your stepping uh, yeah. stone, which is where uh, Axel's I, 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 uh, I think starts, it starts to sing along with that. I'm not your stepping stone. <laughs> so it's really, yeah, it's a song that evolved like from them all kind of playing it together and then became what it became because of, how that happened. So in a way, it's really the uh, such a band song. Um, and one of the all time great guitar solos too. Um, yeah. I learned every single lick on this album in high school. And I gotta say, this might be the hardest lick to play. Um, this, this solo might be the hardest solo to play on the entire album and supposedly Slash nailed it in one take. So wow. hats off to you, sir. Yeah, <laughs> top hats, especially, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but interesting, interesting thing about the breakdown, too, is this just, this just occurred to me this week. Um, that ascending chord change, the E to the you know, G to the A, and then when you throw the guitar solo over top of that, I hear 10 years after I'd love to change the world. You know, in terms of the chord changes and also the types of, you know, licks that Slash is playing over top of that. I mean, you know, I don't know, it, it stood out to me, I thought I'd point it out. But also, too, it's funny, like, if you play some of these licks, you know, I've been in sessions recently where, you know, you play some of these kind of licks over a solo and somebody goes, hmm, all right, well, you know, we're, we're going to have to get a top hat, you know, when you play that song live, you know. Some of those licks are so <laughs> identifiable with Slash, and you want know, you try to borrow them, people kind of know where you're stealing from straight away, which is, again, you know, a true sign of uh, you know of a, a, a guitar god in a way. I mean, he, I, I admire Slash so much in terms of that way. So, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, lyrically, this is Axel is sort of associating true love with childhood innocence, and mm -hmm. uh, and also you know the the bad weather and the rain with emotional uh, tumult. Uh, the idea of uh, you know, your hair, her hair reminds me of a warm, safe place where as a child I lied and prayed for the thunder and the rain to quietly pass me by. I mean, you, you know, I, I have personal memories where I, I can relate to that, that kind of a sentiment. Now, have you guys heard the song Unpublished Critics by Aust Australian Crawl? No. Never heard of that at all. Okay. Check that song out because I, in my research today, I, this is a song that somebody just put it together, I want to say in 2015. Um, more than a little similar uh, between the, the overall melody and the chordal inter interplay uh, to Sweet Child of Mine. And this song came out in 81. I'm not saying yeah. that it was a ripoff or anything like that, but I would say the chances that maybe Slash or somebody in the band was at least unconsciously aware of this song are fairly what was the, What's the name of the song? So it's called Unpublished Critics by Australian Crawl. All right, I'll look it up. Wow, I'll look it up yeah. for sure. Thank you. All right. You're crazy. Uh, yeah, this one struck me a little bit as filler. Again, sort of a nice, a nice trip into Axel's psyche, but nothing really stood out to me about it. Um, yeah, nothing really. I mean, it's not. It it also sort of pales in comparison to Sweet Child of Mine and that kind of stuff. So I really didn't pay much attention to it. 
All right, good, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we're not trying to, you know, right stairway to heaven here, you know, in a way. I mean, it, it's it's chaotic from the beginning. Um, and, you know, for God's sakes, you know, somebody telling somebody that you're crazy and you're fucking crazy. You know, I, I, you know, I've heard stories like that when I was a kid, so I can relate. You know, sometimes people just don't get along. You know, some people need to be told when they're crazy. And that's that. But um, is that really great songwriting? Debatable. Are you telling a story? Yeah. Uh, to me, the takeaways, again, that stood out to me really like that breakdown where they transition before the solo. There's so much great interplay with those guitars. I mean, it's so in tune with each other. And it's so back and forth. Again, put on headphones and listen to this song. This is what a, you know, a good band should sound like, in, in my opinion. Is it a great song? Yeah, debatable. No, probably not. But is it is it well executed? Yeah. Is it well written? Yes. Um, you know, it could, you know, Joe Average guitar player, meet Joe Average guitar player and do this straight away. No, these guys worked on this song and they, they came up with this arrangement and you can tell that they busted their ass to do it. You know, and it deserves the credit for, for that for sure, in my opinion. I actually think I like this song better than you guys. Because um, to me, the thing that, that that works about this song is this is Axel being in his mid to late 20s, uh, commenting upon the you know hedonistic lifestyle of some young girl uh, who's probably you know 18 or whatever, uh, who's who's living her life for pure sexual satisfaction satisfaction hedonistic pleasure uh you know versus the ideal of uh, a real relationship or true love and he's saying you're crazy for valuing that over what's real in life and how do i know because when i was young and stupid like mm -hmm. you and i was 18 mm -hmm. i was living my life the exact same way you are and they told me i was fucking crazy and it was like talking to a wall because i wasn't ready to hear that yet either oh. you know so i think i think that whole thing makes this song work and my my other memory of this song is that the first time i saw guns and roses before gnr lies came out they opened with this song acoustically in halftime, opening for Aerosmith, which was the perfect Guns N' Roses thing to do because it was a song that everybody knew and nobody had ever heard mm -hmm. played like that before. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, what? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's one of the great things about Guns N' Roses is that they were always that band that kept you guessing, that, that gave you great stuff, but never exactly in the way that you were expecting it. So anything goes. Um, again, another one that doesn't really stick out to me. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I really have anything to say about it. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't mind it. I didn't skip it. You know what I mean? But it just it didn't register with me very much. So good, Mike. You're again, we're getting to the second side worst songs on the second side, you know, that kind of stuff. It, they, and then, you know, it goes into Rocket Queen, which of course is fantastic. So go ahead, Mike, what do you think of Anything Goes? Uh, again, I'll just, you know, correct myself. And this was a song that I was thinking earlier was uh, a co-write uh, from when they were in the Hollywood Rose days. Um, it's definitely not that strong of a song uh, overall. And, you know, and I mean this in the best way, the chorus, you know, the My Way, Your Way, Anything Goes Tonight kind of reminds me of like early Def Leppard before, you know, Pyromania and Hysteria in a way. And it seems kind of like a, 
almost seems like something Mutt Lang would have produced in a way. You know, it's it's meant to be like a shout along kind of you know chorus, and you know the common man, your average guy on the street, could you know sing along to it and not really understand and not care about understanding it. But um, yeah, it's it's really not that the strong of a song. But you know, from from my perspective personally, what I love about it is. Um, again, I was talking about how this album made me want to go out and you know have a drum with had a cowbell and I want to get a wah wah pedal and all of a sudden I want to get a talk box you know uh, for guitar and now I have like five of them for no reason you know so but <laughs> the cool thing about this from a guitar player's perspective is um, Slash is trading solos he's trading like talk box solos and doing like Joe Walsh kind of stuff and then doing more like other like you know major scale stuff and it's great again great guitar interplay you know the guy definitely mapped these things out. And that is something to be appreciated. Like, even though you can have a song that really isn't, you know, top notch on an album that is considered top notch, there are things to appreciate. And again, just put on headphones, check that out. You know, a song doesn't have to be, you know, the ultimate song from a songwriting perspective, but if it's well executed, there's something to appreciate about it and, and delve in because it's going to take you on a ride if you, if you want to go down that path. Yeah. I, I think this is, to some extent, the obligatory. 80s hard rock sexual uh sex song you know in fact i think the label said we we'd like one more song that's like an, a, a sex song yeah. you know and this was a song that they had from hollywood rose days that they rewrote uh to a certain extent um i do think you know the 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 fetishistic you know s&m type stuff uh it is hard to find many women in the Hollywood rock scene that aren't into that sort of thing. So, you know, again, I'm sure it comes from personal experience, but yeah, compared to Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City, Welcome to the Jungle, and any number of other songs in this album, uh, probably not the song that you're going to walk away uh, remembering for the rest of your life. But the album certainly ends strongly with Rocket Queen. Yeah, that's a great song. I I got nothing... It sounds like sort of a nice uh, homage to sort of 70s, um, you know, glam rock or 60s, even psychedelia. I love the way that the song switches up in the end, um, you know, to a point where they don't even understand what's going on in it. Um, yeah, there's the, I, I like it a lot. I like there's, um, I remember like, in, uh, you know, all the instrumentation sort of piles on top of each other, but it's nice and clean. You can hear each individual instrument. Um, and it's just, an, it's sort of an interesting song. Um, of course, the ending, I think, has, isn't, the, of course, the, the thing that totally almost ruins it is, of course, the person having sex. And isn't that Axel Rose with like one of the other members' girlfriends or something like that? Now it's like on a platinum album. Yes, that is, that is Axel Rose with Steven Adler's uh, girlfriend. Yeah, what a guy. Um, um, which is interesting because, right, supposedly there is the, the sex song, uh, sexual sounds on, uh, on Shout at the Devil mm. on 10 Seconds to Love, which if you listen to with a fine tooth comb, you can't actually hear. It's like trying to hear satanic references yeah. on a Led Zeppelin album yeah. backwards or something. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's almost like a joke that they put this on there, you know, and made it so explicit that you can't miss it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, you know, looking back on that, it, it's almost unnecessary in a way, you know, in that part of the song. It's a cool riff, anyways, and does it really add something to it? No, you know, no, yeah. But I mean, you know, again, it's a great riff. 
uh, it's kind of a sinister riff at, at the beginning. It's awesome. Um, you know, and also too, a lot of those licks you hear at the beginning, a lot of people think, you know, that all the lead guitar that you're hearing on this record is Slash. That's not the case. All those fun little licks at the beginning of the song are Izzy. He's pan left. Mm. Like, you know, put on the headphones again and check that out, man. Izzy is part and parcel of the sound on this record for sure. And it's, you know, there's just, again, great guitar interplay. You want to get to like the breakdown in the reintro where Slash is playing slide guitar. It's so early, you know, 70s Pink Floyd, you know, with the slide kind of effects and stuff. So David Gilmore, um, but you know, again, you've got this great song, and then you had that coda at the end, where it could have been a whole other song to you know, to begin with. It's it's awesome, you know. It's so dramatic in a way, it's so well written. But at the same time, too, you know, a key factor with this band, if you if you check out the footage from when um, that was released on uh, on MTV when they were playing the Ritz, I mean, they were playing a lot of these songs from this record, and they they do it so well. You know, and there's so many different parts on these songs, you know, to, if you said, you know, here's, get some musicians together and play this song, it, they would have a hard time learning those parts and doing it. But like, you could tell they, they'd work these songs out and they were wearing these songs in their sleeve. And again, check out the footage from, you know, MTV Live at the Ritz on, on this tour. I mean, they, they were such a tight band and there's so much more depth than you, than you, when you hear it on the radio, you're not really hearing all that depth, but if you really focus in and listen to it, there's so much to delve into on, on this record. And this song is a great example of that. Yeah, I agree. That's a classic concert that I think really sold people on Guns N' Roses as a band. Um, and it might have even, you know, helped catapult the record in terms of success, I, I would assume, you know, because it was shown like 11 o'clock on a Sunday night, I think, right? So, you know, who's, yeah. 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 There's some real interesting wordplay with the words turn on in in this song, mm. too, because um, every time Axel uses it, it can almost be a double, if not triple entendre, because when he says, I can turn on anyone just like I turned on you, mm -hmm. you know, is he talking about turning on somebody as in sexually arousing them or is he talking about you know conf becoming confrontational with them out of nowhere right and then yeah. the idea of turn on as in you know get you hip to some new idea or way of thought when he ref reflects on the word again it's you know you want to teach me something about life you want to turn me on to something you better turn me on tonight first that is you know i i won't even listen to anything you have to say until you've turned me on sexually that and and that whole interplay is is great because when the song metamorphoses into what it becomes you know it's axel essentially saying you know listen living life for for immediate hedonistic pleasure is great and all but at the end of the day he's mature enough to realize that any real relationship with a female has to be based on friendship you know, and yeah. that that's really what he wants is to let this person know that he's there for them as a friend and that he cares about them, you know, and, and that to me is what gives this album that much more depth that he's a little bit older, you know, he's not some cocksure, you know, <laughs> guy in his early twenties who's just trying to get laid as much as possible. Um, and I think it's a great closer to arguably the greatest hard rock album of all time. Um, Tom Zutout called this album the last great hard rock album made entirely by hand. Hmm. And 
I think what he meant by that was this album was before the days of Pro Tools being used. You know, mm. wasn't recorded with a click track. Um, so any edits they had to do, they had to do by splicing it together. Um, but it was right on the cusp of that. So there are things that are different about this album than other albums that came before. So for instance, you know, because they had cassettes and CDs were coming out. So there's 12 songs on this album. It's mm. 54 minutes long. It's kind of long. Um, it also was mastered differently than any other major label album had been mastered up until that time. I think part of the reason why it sounds as good as it does is it was mastered hotter than the standard album would have been mastered back then, um, which kind of kicked off the whole loudness wars thing when it came to mastering, which became ridiculous and ended up becoming a you know like basically placing a brick wall limiter on everything mm -hmm. but what it showed is that you could actually get a better overall sound out of a record by mastering it slightly hotter than what the industry standard was when everybody was mixing for vinyl yeah which uh, again I, I find interesting too because you know these days if you're in a band and, and you're going to record a you know, vinyl record you know the, the first thing they tell you is each side has to be no longer than 22 minutes per side maximum otherwise you start to lose bottom end you know at, you know and you know, i've got piles of you know copies of this record on vinyl and it never seems to lose bottom end when you get to the end uh -huh. side one or side two so like guys tell me like oh we need to have either like only 10 songs on the record or you can't be 25 like what are you talking about like death leopard hysteria Kiss Hot in the Shade, this record, but those are long records. Like these records don't sound bad. What changed from yeah. then until now? I still don't understand. You know, why do I have things split on the two you know, pieces of vinyl? I, I, I don't get it. But, you know, to me, I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I digress. I, it bothers me. <laughs> sorry. But it, in terms of the production, too, um, the guys that mixed this record also mixed uh, later records by Tesla that uh, have great mixes as well, like uh, Psychotic Supper. I mean, there's a lot of depth. And a lot of bottom end on those records as well and you know there's a, a key component between you know this record and the records i just mentioned so it's you know it it's a killer album sounds great from top to bottom yeah. you know the other great quote by tom zutat about this record is this was the last time a major label uh the last time major label rock record making was funded as an art form, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. where you had a label that was willing to give a half a million dollars to a band. And, and I think unlike say Chinese democracy, where they essentially had all the time in the world and a, a limitless budget, the reason why this album is so great is because you had these guys that were so talented and they had all the time and the money they needed, but they weren't allowed to spend five years making this record and re-recording it and, uh, and fixing every last detail and everything like that. Because, you know, th there is something to be said for the tyranny of the deadline and, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah. You know, Axel sounds great on this record. And I've, I've read some things that say that he recorded it one line at a time, you know, wow. and whether or not that's true, you can't argue with the results, but he's actually arranged very tastefully when he's doubled or when he's, he's singing harmonies with himself. It's not like there's a million Axels screaming in your ears like 
sometimes it feels like in later records. Yeah. Yeah, but also, too, if you watch uh, the interview documentary, he talks about, you know, I guess he also was, um, if you want to call it, you know, in church or religious situations as a kid. And he had him, some of his other brothers and sisters, they would all high parts and low parts, you know, and he's got a, a wide range of vocal skills that, that you know, that are on this record. That, that, that a killer. And you can you can hear his background singing in the church choirs on this. I mean, it's yeah. all over the way the the soulfulness in his voice and the melodies and um, and the other thing is that he's singing in all kinds of different styles. It's almost like he's using different voices, you know, and really tailoring his approach to singing the songs to the different songs itself. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes he's singing in very full-throated kind of, you know, lower, lower baritone register. And then sometimes he's just nailing these high notes, like in, in full voice too. It's just, it's so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So final thoughts about Appetite. John? Wish I had bought this instead of the Cults Electric back in '87. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I like this is a very weird transition year for me in terms of like, I mean, this is the same year that I heard, you know, a couple of replacements albums. Started listening to college radio, so I and I feel bad. I feel like I missed out you know, on, on it being sort of organic, but at the time I wasn't, wasn't interested in it, but now I realize that it really is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. The hype is real. Go ahead, Mike. I'll just say again, thank you to Dave for introducing me to this record and he's introduced me to so many other great records um, you know, that I wasn't aware of at the time. So again, thanks Dave. It's, it's a killer record. I'm so glad we got to see that show where they opened to Aerosmith in 1987 on the Turner Vacation Tour. It was kind of, I don't say life changing, but I remember like when they came out on stage, you could tell like something wasn't right. Like they were, was there an argument or a fight or it was, it, all of a sudden they just like, okay, we're gonna play this song and they open with that, you know, crazy version of you're crazy. And, you know, in a way they kind of stole the show away. And it was, it was exciting to see that because when do you ever get like an opening band that opens for such an established band like Aerosmith and, you know, that's the band you want to see. You know, like I've seen Aerosmith tons of times. They, they're either good or bad and whatever, but you know, Guns to me stood out for sure. Aerosmith were like so polished in a way and Guns were such a, a rough diamond, you know, that, that was so fun to see at that time. So, and again, the album's killer. I'm glad I got to revisit it again you know, for this podcast because again, it just again shows you how a great band should be. Everybody should have, you know, everybody should be of equal strength to one another as players. Everybody's got to be interesting parts. If everybody's playing the same note all the time, there's no depth, there's no dimension, you know. And again, my takeaway too is put some headphones on, listen to this record, you're going to be blown away by how much really is going on in this record that you might not have ever heard before. It's awesome. I mean, God. And also too, we're probably going to get into other Guns N' Roses records on these podcasts, but like that sort of depth and dimension is not on records later in, in their career. And it's kind of the downfall of those records in a way, but you know, we'll get to that some other time but this is prime example of a band that obviously work these songs out in rehearsal play them in venues small clubs it sounds great in a record and it sounds even bigger in, in, in a live arena situation so awesome album love it yeah I, this album was such a game changer i think people were in awe of how good it was once they finally discovered it um and it took a long time it came out 
uh, for about eight months and uh, sold about 200,000 copies, Was didn't do particularly well. MTV refused to play the Welcome to the Jungle video due to some politics. Uh, they had a conservative Christian guy that was in charge of a lot of the markets and he didn't want to play this junkie band. They finally convinced them to play Welcome to the Jungle one time at 3 a.m. Uh, and they, the phones lit up and they couldn't get enough of the video and they were forced to start playing it. And ain't that rock and roll. You know, there, there are so many examples in rock and roll from, from Elvis Presley uh, onward of things that almost didn't happen, except, you know, there was one last chance and, you know, one spark that lit a fire. Uh, and this album is a prime example of that. I mean, certainly they took influences of bands like Aerosmith and even Motley Crue, but they took things that they had, had done and they absorbed them and they did them arguably as good or better than they had ever been done before to the point where they became immediate influences on the future recordings of both of those bands, Yeah, you know, and yeah. uh, like, I think this is one of those examples, you know, as, as much as you talk about like a band like the Sex Pistols essentially had one album. If this was the only thing Guns N' Roses had ever done, they would still be one of the all time great hard rock bands simply because of this album. You know, I would go see them live tomorrow and for the rest of my life if the only thing they played was this album. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I, I think it, it just, it stands the test of time. It sounds as ferocious and relevant today as it did the day that it came out. And I, I have a, a vivid memory of being in the newsstand in Squirrel Hill, listening to kids talk about this album just in like hushed tones. And they weren't even metalheads. They were just kids that occasionally listened to rock and roll and they were just saying, I can't believe it's this fucking good, you know? <laughs> and that's probably all there is to ultimately say about Appetite. We'll be back next week. We'll take a look at GNR Lies.